Whether it's digital or analog design that keeps you busy, today it's all about the experience. This is Experience by Design, a podcast exploring the latest trends and solutions helping create the most intriguing experiences you can imagine and the ones you can't. Hosted by Brian Mazaros. Welcome to another episode of the Experience by Design podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian Mazaros, and today we welcome Jonathan Alger, managing partner and co-founder at CNG Partners based in New York. Jonathan is a multi-specialist designer of interactive public space, brand, and digital. With over two decades of experience, he believes in strategic thinking and the thoughtful use of technology. His clients span from the Holocaust Museum to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Smithsonian, the 9-11 Museum, and many more. Jonathan has been honored by AIGA, AAM, ADC, AASLH, and others that don't start with the letter A. And like me, he's also past president of SEGD. And if you listen and stay tuned, we will reveal another thing we have in common, uh, but we will get to that later. So with all that said, Jonathan, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm a listener. Um, so I'm very excited to be here. I have you on my uh, podcast favorite list right next to podcasts about college admission. I love that. That's that's exactly where I was trying to... That, that's where I'm skewing the show towards. I think it was a, a good compliment. Any, any uh, you know, anyone who's in the trying to get a, their son or daughter admitted to college uh, would probably listen to your podcast. This is, great, this is great material for that. Anything that could help could help. They, you know, we're desperate out here. Oh, nice. But anyway, so I will continue. Nice I will think about that. Thank you. And I will think about that for future episodes. So um, <laughs> it's, it's new topics to explore for experience. It's an experience. It is. So. It's, oh, yes. It's quite an experience. Mm-hmm. But I digress. <laughs> so how are you? How has everything been? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's good. Um, in quotes. Uh, other than... Uh, you know, the, you know, global pandemic, yeah. uh, which is an issue. Uh, other than that, it's, it's good. We've been fortunate, um, uh, in our company and in my family to, um, you know, still be standing mm-hmm. much more fortunate than a lot of folks and trying to help out where we can, anywhere we can. Um, so, um, we're, we're thankful, we're, you know, thankful to be here and looking forward to a time, hopefully not too far off where, we can be looking back on this. How yeah, about you? How are you? Pretty much the same. You know, we're, we're, we're hanging in there. I think uh, like, like every agency, I mean, it's, uh, it's a time for experimenting. So you, you, you occupy your time with exploring things. And then, you know, projects are coming in and everything seems to be, you know, close to rebounding. But like you said, um, I think we're all just kind of waiting for a little bit more clear skies. But uh, no, yeah, it's, we're it's, all waiting for something. We're waiting, waiting for yeah. the other shoe to drop. We we're are. waiting for Godot. I, I'm not sure what I'm waiting for, but um, it, you know, it's Friday and it's okay today. So okay, true. I'm good. it's true. Yeah. Well, so you guys seem to have been pretty busy. It was because I, um, so it was about I think a week or so ago. I um, I listened in. Uh, well, helped moderate actually. Um, you were talking a little bit about your work with Memorial Sloan Kettering. Yes, which was which is really fascinating, um, which is you know a very unique project um, given I guess you know given the circumstances today working in healthcare um, is, is certainly a, a, a great environment. Um, yeah, but it was actually fascinating. I mean, a lot of great aspects to that, and so I'm kind of curious just to to kind of talk about that a little bit more. Um, you know, one of, of just the project in general, but two a little bit more about the emotional impacts that experiences have on, on um, people, especially within healthcare. So I guess to start is if you could just talk a little bit about, about the project and your role and, and really how that even came to, to be. Sure. Um, the, and that, that topic of uh, emotion in design, I mean, we're talking about experience by design generally here, right? So yeah. uh, emotion by design or emotion in design or emotion through design, I think is a great piece of that. And I think we can, we can really get into that. But let me explain the project a little bit, um, sort of verbally here. Um, Memorial Sloan Kettering is a, a very well-known, deservedly well-known 
uh, Cancer Center. It's a hospital dedicated only to cancer care. Uh, their main campus uh, and set of buildings is in Manhattan, in New York, and they're well-known enough and high-ranked enough. Many people rank them as sort of number one in, in the region, if not in the country, and people from Saudi Arabia fly here for their treatments. It's, it's at that level. Um, and we were fortunate enough to be chosen to do a project for them in their new center. They have a new center, David Koch Center for Cancer Care, which is in Manhattan on the, on the east side. And, uh, you know, remarkable new building, every amenity you could imagine, really healthcare 2.0 or healthcare, you know, 9.0. It's very advanced uh, building in every way. And we partnered with uh, Potion, uh, technology design uh, firm in uh, here in, in New York that we've worked with uh, in the past. And we presented uh, as a, as a uh, collaborative consortium uh, some good ideas that we thought might help them. And the thing that they were looking for was uh, solutions in the realm of what we would call in healthcare positive distractions, which that sounds like that sounds like an oxymoron, right? That sounds like you know jumbo shrimp or something yeah. because it's like how can a distraction <laughs> be positive? But in fact, it can. And so uh, positive distraction is basically it's defined as an environmental feature that elicits, elicits positive feelings and holds attention without taxing or stressing the individual and thereby blocks worrisome thoughts. So you're, you're really directing attention to a non-toxic event in the immediate environment. So the Morris Sloan Kettering, this particular cancer center is for outpatient care for people who need to come daily to get some kind of treatment and that may be for a few days or maybe really for many days. Uh, they're often, they may be young, they may be old, they may be able to get around on their own, they may not. And they may be with one or more caregivers from friends or family, or they may not. But one thing is for sure, when they walk in the door, they're having a lot of negative emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, Rightfully so, yes. Right, all of, all of the classic ones. And... Um, there are more negative basic emotions and there are positive ones. We can get into that in a bit. But uh, positive distractions are basically meant to distract you from those negative and worrisome thoughts to focus on a little bit of joy. And there have been uh, tests, clinical tests, real research done with uh, research uh, subjects where it's been proven that uh, people who are, for example, in a hospital ward, to heal from the surgery, and they have visual access to the outdoors, and they can see trees and clouds moving or water outside. It's actually clinically proven that they literally heal faster, appreciably faster, not just a little bit. And so this whole world, and so now when you go to any kind of uh, clinic or hospital or healthcare environment, you often see things like sculptures, puzzles, uh, water fountains, uh, cafes, and uh, art. And now increasingly, you, know, you will see things like, like what we did in this case, which is essentially digital and interactive installation art. So that's the project. That's, that's what we did for them. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I, I've been seeing you know, more, more examples of, of, like you said, you know, hospitals turning towards um, you know, creating these moments, but more of them becoming digital. Um, you know, whether they are, you know, something that is, is greeting the patient or, you know, noticing a lot where it follows their journey. You know, it's, it's not just, um, out in the lobby, but there's elements of it that do eventually find their way through into treatment rooms or into the patient's, uh, room themselves. So it was there, a, a, you know, I guess a challenge in defining where this would be placed alongside of the the patient, like you know, where are they interacting with it, and what part of their journey are they interacting with it, and to what scale is it defined as? Was was that a, a, a challenge for uh, for you and the team? In in this case, no. In other cases, yes. They had already been working on the design of the building for some time, and they they had two public areas. Uh, one was uh, the entry, the lobby where people arrive for the first time. 
you know, when you see the building for the first time, especially if the treatment is, is quite, um, these, these treatments are not pleasant. Let's just put it that way. And so when you see the building or you turn the corner to drive to the building, you might you know, start to feel these sensations. And certainly when you walk into the building and they, they have staff there that are trained to be just about the most wonderful people ever. Uh, you know, stress just drains away when you talk to them, actually. Um, but they wanted to do something in that main lobby as well to really uh, be visually interesting and engaging and distracting. They also wanted to do something on the sixth floor. Uh, the way this building is laid out, they're sort of a, uh, behind the uh, entry proper where you have to have ID and be scanned and be allowed in, especially these days. Um, for, the, for the last year, it's been especially important that, that there be control at the, at the main gate of people who come in. Uh, and on that sixth floor, there's a gathering place for everybody. That's where there's food, there's some conference areas. And people who are in the middle of treatment or waiting for treatment or waiting after treatment, they have to wait for a time after, or they're in some kind of two-part treatment, they gather in this this sort of town square that happens to be on the sixth floor. And so there were, we were already given those two locations, and we proposed two different ideas for the two of them that are related. So the one on the first floor is... Uh, there, if you check out our website, you can see some visuals and some movies, but I'll describe it as, as best I can. It's a naturalistic uh, sort of everlasting series of animations that shine directly through a wood wall. The, um, it's very hard for people to figure out how it's being done. There is a, a wood product called Luminoso, Luminoso, and it has basically tiny fiber optics built into it. And you can put an, uh, a source of illumination behind it, and that illumination, a trace of that illumination, will be basically broadcast, transilluminated through the wood. And if that illumination source is moving, if it's an LED or a monitor or moving lights, the wood will seem to have moving figures. So we created animations of uh, bonsai trees, butterflies, uh, leaves and flowers blooming, and koi fish, which were sort of determined by a lot of testing with the with the audience, uh, with our clients, uh, to be the best sort of biophilia distraction, looking at nature, sort of stochastic activity, sort of uh, meaning a naturally randomized activity, is uh, the the most universally. Uh, positively distracting, the most sort of stress-free. It's a little bit like sitting by a babbling brook and taking in all of the sights and sounds. And so that's what we created. And it's it has a, a stately motion, and it is also a little bit magical. It's hard to tell how it works. And it's always changing, always varied. And so people who are there in the lobby get to just sort of, if you will, sort of zone out a little bit and look at that. And it has delight. You know, the, the fish do funny things. And every once in a while, there's sort of a mischievous leaf that blows by. And so there's a bit of a storyline. There's a bit of a plot. There's almost characters. There's certainly a setting. And that's how we sort of generate that emotion. On the on the sixth floor, um, now we've got a little bit more time with people. And up there, we have a, a basically a synthetic koi pond. It's a sculpture that looks just like what a koi pond fancier, a koi fancier would have, the sort of tanks, a series, it has three legs, these tanks, and it's actually uh, monitors, touch monitors facing up uh, that look like a shallow koi pond. You can touch them, you don't have to, but you can touch them. And the fish behave algorithmically, schooling and uh, responding to you and responding to your presence, and it changes over seasons and days and all of that. And our friends at Potion had a had a lot to do with the uh, with the programming of that and the, the styling of the software part of that in the sixth floor. And so it's a two-part project. Uh, there's a lot in common. The biophilia is in common. Uh, the use of nature, the sort of soft touch, and then specifically the koi. Uh, the koi, uh, which are fancy goldfish, a sort of beautiful collector goldfish uh, that you see in public parks and, and wherever, were the theme. That came from a direct inspiration from, uh, from me, my... Um, uh, my father-in-law, my wife's father, uh, is a uh, loves koi, and he's uh, you know getting getting on in years, and he's beginning to lose his memory, and so sort of in in salute to him, uh, we came up with this idea called memory koi. Uh, these digital fish have the ability to hold a message and pass it on, mm -hmm. so it, it 
you know, it's kind of a, it's definitely an emotional project in a lot of ways for for us, me on a personal level, and, and also it deals with uh, emotion and the clinical application of positive emotion, which I agree with you. It's a very interesting topic, and it's also one that was very rewarding for us because we felt like, wow, you know, a lot of times where you and I are in the business of trying to communicate or persuade or or something like that, perhaps we're not actually creating the product. We're creating meta stuff about why the product is good or something. Uh, but in this case, we felt like we were actually literally helping some people who need help. And that's that feels really good. Yeah, I was, was going to say, you know, your last point. I mean, it's I think there's a bit of a challenge when, you know, your output is is digital, um, you know, and how we're, we're solving problems. And I, I think it's sometimes it's hard to keep the understanding that you know, there's an emotional aspect or, or there, there's an emotional connection that can happen. Um, you know, not every, every project is, is, you know, unfortunately skewed that way. Um, but I think it's, it's a challenge when you, like you said, you're trying to connect on the emotions, you're trying to, um, you know, kind of work in, in that environment. Do you, do you find that always challenging and really kind of thinking that through and saying, well, yes, we're putting this out on this, this type of output where it is digital, but, when we visually create something, we, we still have to think about this kind of emotion connect, emotional connection we want to have with the audience and, and maintaining that. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, as people who are involved in specifying or suggesting technology, which although the technology changes and with every new month or every new year, we all say, this is the most amazing ever. The, the fact is it's a continuous evolution. And Years ago, we were proposing this kind of technology, and now we're proposing that. And sometimes it's analog. Right? Sometimes it's, you know, it's a campfire and a ghost story or something like that. But we do get a little bit obsessed sometimes with technology for technology's sake. And, and that's true with all of our clients, if we wanted to be honest with ourselves and if our clients were really honest. To a certain degree, they're sort of a keeping up with the Joneses, you know, like, well, the real estate developers down the street have an LED wall the size of Cincinnati in their lobby. Mm -hmm. I need an LED wall the size of Cleveland. Naturally, um, yes. You know, why do you need it? I don't know. It works for them. Mm -hmm. Get me one stat. Mm -hmm. So there, there's always that. But you can lose track of the, the emotions. One of my favorite recent touchstones for that, which is something that's both relentlessly digital and also relentlessly sensitive to emotion, is the Pixar film Inside Out which mm -hmm. was a huge box office success in, I think, 2015 or 2016. It's been around for a while. But in that film, um, you probably remember that it takes place sort of in the head yes. of an adolescent girl going through a lot of, you know, change in life and, uh, you know, how things like that go. But inside her head, in sort of a control room, there are five characters, and the characters all have different colors and all have different personalities, and they are five emotions. And you probably remember who they are. There's the, uh, there's fear and there's disgust. Uh, that's a green character. Yeah. There is anger. Right. Anger. Right. Exactly. Anger. Yeah. That's a kind of, you got a, he's got a mustache and his hair is on fire when he gets a little crazy. And there's sadness, right? That was the blue girl. Mm -hmm. And then there's the leader of all of them or who seems to be the leader, Joy. And Joy is a yellow character. So there's these five colors, these five emotions. And if you're keeping track, Four of them are negative, right? Joy is kind of all alone on the on the upside yes. in, in that movie. But it turns out that those emotions, that, that is actually correct. Like if you look at the, uh, the work of emotion scientists, which is the thing, uh, they will confirm. Actually, they were not long ago, they, they did a poll of all the emotion scientists and said, okay, how many emotions are there confirmed for sure that we have evidence for? And all of them could agree uh, with these, with these five. And actually, this famous emotion scientist named Paul Ekman, uh, E-K-M-A-N, which is a great name to look up, a great website. Um, he kind of uh, chaperoned this survey and he came up with these five. And then sure enough, Inside Out, uh, the production Inside Out used him as a consultant just to make sure that they got it right. So the fact is that in human emotions, there are four negative ones, the basic ones. And uh, and there's one positive one. You know, when emotions get really uh, amplified, like fear becomes terror and disgust 
gets into loathing and anger becomes rage and joy is like ecstasy. But most of the time we're feeling something a little bit, a little bit milder, right? Instead of, you know, at most we're going for serenity, maybe not ecstasy. And that's the emotion that we were going for it for MSK. Uh, the sort of just a kind of a pleasant sort of burbling distraction, right? To, to get you away from probably a slight variation on fear, like the, the slighter version, fear's slighter cousin is apprehension, right? Apprehension, boredom, annoyance, being, you know, too thoughtful. So when you're outnumbered four to one, and all those negative emotions obviously are hardwired by evolution to keep us alive. You know, fears like bushes are wiggling, I run away now. Uh, or this food seems awful, me not eat. Uh, and then joy is kind of, you know, hard to come by. So we're, we're, we're basically trying to, trying to come up with something that will distract people who are feel, feel, feeling uh, fear, disgust, anger, sadness, all those other ones, and try to, try to plunk them down in front of joy. And, and that's, that's tricky to do. But what's interesting, and I, I was really thinking about this in sort of the run up to this podcast. I was thinking, so we were talking a little bit before, like, what is the difference between an immersive experience and how it tells stories and how it generates emotion and a, another kind of experience, like a story that you read or that you hear? Or if I told you a story, I said, Brian, there's a, a young boy, he's lost his balloon, uh, or uh, Netflix or YouTube or whatever. What's the difference between those mediums where we're watching it, we're not in it? Right, uh, and a medium that's immersive, and it, I really started thinking a little bit more carefully about what those differences are. And I think there's some interesting differences we could talk about. I, I think there is. I mean, there's the, the, there's a lot. I mean, you know, for, for, for first, I mean, you're you're taking you know a story that's being told on on this flat panel, and and now you know having that ability to to take the story and be able to build it out in almost three dimension to where you know, a guest, a visitor is within that environment and, and everything they look at has something to do with that story. And and I think you were you were spot on, you say, you know, I think another challenge too is you're dealing with the physical and it's not well it's it's not digital all around you. It, it doesn't have to be, it shouldn't be. And it's the balance between the materials, the wood, the the flooring, you know, everything, even even the scent in the air. I mean, all that contributes to affecting an emotion or making you feel more connected to whatever that that story is. Uh, I, you know, I was actually two things. I, there's, there's two points. One, I'll, I'll take a step back and and maybe I'll unveil what what the similarity is because I, I love that you brought up Inside Out because my wife and and your wife are, are very similar industries with mental health, and uh, that is you are revealing the. Big, I am revealing soon. I know. Thing. I know. I could. I couldn't. I couldn't. I. I, I couldn't. That's good. No, that's good storytelling. You, you know, it's, like, it you, know, is. You, you put it in at the front, left it unresolved, unresolved yes. conflict. Now it must be revealed, and now it, it must be say more. Say more. I say more. Um, I you know, I will say the funnier part to that is is obviously Inside Out. Um, I, when the movie came out, I, I think it was. Um, so my wife wanted to you know, to go see it. Obviously, she was interested in it. And um, I think it was a couple of months later, we went. I took her to a comedy show to go see Louis Black, and she did not know who Louis Black was. And I was like, "Don't you will get you will understand." And immediately she's like, "That's anger." And I was like, "Yep, that is." <laughs> and uh, and then it was funny because then after that, subsequently, the next couple of flights we went on, he was on each one of those flights. <laughs> So um, that was a strange occurrence. Um, oh, that that is that is strange. That's strange. Okay, so okay. It's like, I guess it's a story. are mounting. So, yes, yes. Um, they are mounting. And of course, both of our, both of our wives are psychotherapists. Yes. Not only are we both past presidents of SEGD, which is kind of odd, but both of our wives are psychotherapists, and uh, they they have they had practices in in Lower Manhattan until recently. So it's getting pretty weird. Yes, literally around the corner from one another. It is. It is. I'm sure maybe we'll find. Should we go for a fourth? Maybe. Maybe later on we'll figure out that there's something else that we're unaware of. Have, have people ever seen the two of us in the same place at the same time? They have. Okay. Yeah. There, I, there are good. pictures. There's doc. This has been documented visually. Okay, I, I, just wanted to check that. Yeah, I think. It just is. wanted to check that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that you know, it, it's funny. That I just referenced Inside Out because that's a very easily at hand mm -hmm. sort of shortcut to think about emotions because 
in our business, I find that people sort of say the first word, the big word, and it sort of they let it hang out in the air in the meeting, and people sort of nod and say, "Oh, good." Uh, you say we're going to appeal to the emotions, and people say, "Good." And my answer is like, "Wait, wait, which ones?" There are thirty-six of them. Uh, let's break that down because if we can break it down, uh, we we might be able to find something innovative, something interesting, and make what we're doing a little bit better. And and it turns out that inside out is a very easy way for people to start imagining uh, at least the basic. You know those and those are the most those those five those characters are the emotions that are built in they ship with the product right they're built into your amygdala and they are the ones that even uh, animals like mammals uh, experience all of those and infants before they're taught anything you have to be taught mm -hmm. to feel guilt or feel shame uh, and also by the way you have to be taught to feel hate. Uh, you 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 have to grow up to feel hate. When you're young, the best you can do is anger. Um, so these are the basic ones. It's a basic. It's a good place to start. Well, so then you know this kind of segues into you know the next question is is that you know you, you go from working. I mean, I, I love the span of, of of the work that that you do, and you you go from working on a project with MSK, and I mean you. you I mentioned before you worked at the 9/11 Museum, and mm -hmm. you also had done work. Um, I think it was about a year or so ago with the Museum of the Bible, which I, I, I believe, rightfully so, you, you guys had won several awards for it. You know, Correct. all true. All a project, true. A, project, a project like that, it's it's interesting, I, and and I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by it because you know you're you're taking historical events, um, you know, in the religious set in the religious tone. Which you know, there's emotion to it, but then you're also, you know, trying to tell and, and and trying to sort of bring this artifact to life, but still keep the emotion part connected to it. Um, I mean, how how again? I you know, like I said, it it comes back. You're absolutely right. It comes back to emotion and, and understanding which ones are important to think about. I mean, how do you distinguish that balance, and how do you take stories that might and it's throughout, I mean, the Bible is, is, is scattered with them of stories that have anger, have fear, have joy, and try to consolidate that so that the person that's experiencing that story maintains a certain level of, you know, a consistent interaction with it or a consistency with it. I don't know if I'm kind of phrasing that right, but how do you take all those different aspects of a story and then, you know, translate that into an experience? Yeah, it's, that's a that's a great one. It's also kind of interesting because again, it's very meta. Because, of course, the Bible itself is a story. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a book made out of a bunch of books in different styles. Yes. So it's kind of a story made out of stories that are about stories. And and in a sense, because it it serves in part as sort of a, a carrying system for a set of morals or values uh, that uh, you know a group of people is meant to sort of absorb, agree upon, and act upon. Right? It's sort of religious. A religious text. Um, it's it's interesting to think about how you make a story about a story made of stories, right? So I'll I'll set aside the origin story of how we got involved in that project, which is a, a whole other thing. And just you know, fast forward to what it's about. We did. If you go to the Museum of the Bible in, in D.C. and you should, uh, I'm I'm sure people listening are are either uh, in the camp of of loving the Bible or hating the Bible or being indifferent about the Bible, being suspicious of it, celebrating it. There are many, as many reactions as you can imagine. Um, it's a very, uh, certainly a very, very, very popular book, very notorious book, et cetera, for thousands of years. So um, it is, however, a museum in Washington, D.C., privately funded, that is one of the most remarkably advanced museums I've ever been in. It really is one of the, the big ones in DC. And if you are certainly if you're if you're in the business, and a lot of a lot of listeners are, it's a place to go to just check off uh, all kinds of techniques that you can use and, and strategies that you could use. It's it really is a must-see, I would say. So I would I would suggest that everybody go check it out. The floor that we did, we did a whole floor, 30,000 square feet, uh, and other firms did other floors and we all worked together. It was really a <laughs> it's like a kumbaya moment. It was like a <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm going to avoid the straight lines, uh, but it was a it was a great experience for us and great clients. They were just terrific, 
we worked on it for four years, a lot of us in the office. We did a part of the uh, museum that's called the Impact Galleries. The assignment we were given was not to uh, show uh, artifactual examples of old Bibles, uh, not to dramatize the story of the Bible. Uh, that was done on other floors. They're both terrific. Uh, but to talk about the impact of the Bible everywhere else. And so we, we created these galleries called the Impact of the Bible. And we were very curious about this, whether you're a religious person, a person of faith, a person of a different faith, a person of no faith. It's kind of hard to argue that the Bible hasn't had some impact. So we created this from scratch because there's no book about that. There's no college chair mm -hmm. about that. There's no there's no David Attenborough of that. Uh, I wish there were. Well, that would be cool. <laughs> that would maybe, be. maybe David Attenborough could be the David Attenborough of that. I don't know. Um, but we we created um, a whole gallery that's about the impact of the Bible on the history of America in ways you know big and small and good and bad. Uh, um, a section about the impact of the Bible in real time called Bible Now, which is about how people are mentioning or paraphrasing the Bible in social media right this minute. Uh, a whole sort of flying theater experience about the impact of the Bible on, on the buildings and the engravings in Washington, D.C. And then the biggest section is called the Bible in the World, and that's about all of uh, the different ways that the Bible has impacted basically every category of human endeavor, every cultural category, art, art history, literature, music, stage and screen, health, crime and punishment, government, education. It just goes on and on. And if I say to you, if I say, Brian, can you imagine that the Bible has had an impact on art history? You would probably think for a minute and then go, oh, yeah, right. Heck, it, yeah, sure has, definitely. And that's true everywhere. So we were trying to come up with examples of, um, of, of ways that it was the people would walk away from each one of the experiences, each one of these immersive experiences. And I kind of want to get back eventually in our conversation, that idea of how do immersive experiences generate emotions different from any other experience? Because I, I think you're kind of onto something there. But we, we wanted to have people walk away feeling that they were smart already and that the answer to these questions was hidden in plain sight. And it was sort of patently obvious that all of these conclusions were true. And we just wanted to show people yeah, the Bible is this is this book that you can love or hate, but it has had this impact. And if we all agreed that we've all been impacted by it, that would be an interesting thing that we would actually all have in common. And that's not a proselytizing thing. That's not a uh, religious conversion thing at all. It's more of an academic thing or a philosophical thing that we were pretty fascinated in. So anyway, it's it's worth going to see, you know, maybe once things are, are sort of safe. We're very proud of the work that we did there. And we really did use physical space as the storytelling medium there. And by the way, I should mention the entire museum is one of the most technologically advanced, if not the most at the time that it was opened and sort of still is. And our floor is, 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 uh, is follows suit. Uh, we've got uh, dozens and dozens of, of interactive and media experiences in that 30,000 square feet. We've got books that are magical. We've got you know, tapestries that come to life through projection. We've got a whole room where we project uh, a time-lapse video of, of all the holy sites of Jerusalem today uh, all around you in 360 degrees. So it's, it's a real, it's a real technology showcase. Do you, I mean, kind of what you were kind of saying before, I mean, I, you know, coming out of experience like that and, and others too, um, you know, I do think, you know, keeping emotion involved in the story just makes the experience more i mean i think that's that's what makes it immersive I, I think there's there's a lot of ways to look at immersive i mean you can immerse someone within in a, in a physical environment but i think that's being a little too too broad i, I think when you, you tie that emotion into the experience now now you really feel a connection i think that becomes more memorable you you see more of what you witnessed or interacted with resonates with you when you feel that yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I, I think it goes deeper than that, actually, because they they say, technically speaking, you know, in, in marketing, right, we learned that uh, decisions, despite what economists theoretically think happens, 
decisions are not made using logic. If your amygdala, where emotions sit in your brain, is damaged, everything else is fine, but you somehow damage your amygdala, you cannot feel emotion anymore. There have been some people who have had that happen to them. Uh, unfortunately, and scientists have studied them. And the, one of the biggest outcomes of that kind of damage to the brain is you can't decide anything anymore. You can't decide, should I go left or right? Should I have some milk now or wait for later? Because what they've discovered is that emotions are necessary in any decision. It's not logical, you, right? So that's what, they, that's what we know from Marketing 101. The emotions almost make the decision for you before you realize it. It's like, no, I do not need that fancy red car. Right. Yet I am getting it. And emotions kind of decide on that. Mm -hmm. And that's because you have fear of getting older. You're angry that your parents didn't get you the car when you were in high school. You're sad that your friend has it. And you think that you will have joy if you have it because other people will think well of you or something. Right. So all the emotions fire. And then the emotions hand over the decision to your logical brain. And then your logical brain thinks that it's making the decision, but it actually isn't because then you're convincing yourself that the gas mileage is good. Um, so I think that, um, that, that the role of emotion in, in decision making and deciding what to do, the role of emotion in remembering, uh, what you're experiencing is, you know, what I find interesting about this conversation is that I think it's, it's not only helps. Mm -hmm. You could argue it's the only thing. Yeah. Like nothing else does anything. Uh, and, and I really think that this idea that we were talking to one another before in the run up to this, this idea that, you know, immersive, how do immersive experiences work with emotion as a medium? Right. If you think about emotion as a, as a resource that you can tap. So going back to, you know, the movie Inside Out, when you're watching that movie and the little girl goes, through some things that kind of we all do when we're mm -hmm. adolescents. Yeah. Uh, I won't spoil what the movie plot is, but, you know, she has some issues at school. She's got some friend stuff. Her family moves. You know, she's a, she, and she's an only child. She has to kind of make friends. And so we can all totally empathize with that. Mm -hmm. And that's that empathy is the channel that makes uh, mass media, books, and other things cause us to have an emotional reaction. We can't have an emotional reaction. If we just go to a bookstore and look at a book, it cannot emotionify us. We have to read it. We have to read the rising action, the falling action. We have to get to know the protagonist. Then the mirror neuron thing starts to trigger our empathy reaction, which basically means we feel the same emotion another person does because we're humans. And then that delivers, that's like an injection. It's like the movie Inception. It delivers into us the emotion that the author wants to incept in us, right? But what I think immersive experiences do is different from any of those other mediums. I'm kind of spitballing here, and I haven't done any research about this. No, so no, this is interesting this, because I have, I have a really, I think, a, a little bit of a, a twisted, twist on a question, but, you know, please. And I, I'm also worried that there's like a, a vast body of research about this, and I'm about to look really dumb. But um, I know enough about it that there's something out there, but not everything out there, because it's a relatively... Digital immersive experiences are relatively recent. It's only mm -hmm. become affordable to do things like that really at scale, you know, in the last generation. So I, I have a creeping suspicion that immersive uh, experiences, because we are the protagonist, they deliver the emotion. They don't deliver the emotion at all. The emotion comes out of us as a result uh, because we're in a physical space. It's the same as like, if there's a saber-toothed tiger in the bushes, we feel the emotion. The saber-toothed tiger isn't delivering it to us. Exactly. And so, so here is, and, and you, this is actually like a perfect setup for the question I was going to ask, which uh -huh. is, you know, so now you, you build on that theory. And I think the new level or I think addition to storytelling is is capturing, you know, user-generated content, lack of a better description of it. You know, taking what's happening on social or taking the fact that, People are coming in with a phone or, or the ability to add to a story. You know, I've, I've seen some experiences where, you know, they're, they're trying to grab that. They're trying to extract that and have you participate um, almost in, in real time for that. Is, is that a, because you're right, I think there's, there's an opportunity of really kind of extracting that and, and, and pulling that and that adds to that story. 
I think it's hard. It's, 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 I don't know. It's a double-edged sword. I, I think it's, it's, it's a great aspect of storytelling because if you allow the user to contribute to the moment that they're in, there's something unique that can come out of that, but not every story is set up to allow that to happen. Um, you know, some stories you're, you're telling that happened in the past, but then some experiences um, have that opportunity to continue to evolve as people experience it and share their own experiences during that period that then add more value or just sort of change the whole perception of it for the next person through, if, if that makes sense. That, yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, connecting the immersive experience and the, you know, the use of storytelling to generate emotion in an immersive space with social media, that's a pretty easy link to make. It's already made for us, actually, in many famous examples. Right now, it's, a, it's not really the talk of the town, but rewind the tape a year ago when we were still very much talking about Instagram museums mm-hmm. um, and, you know, uh, uh, selfie magnets and things like that, your museum of ice cream, your color factory, your, your you name it. And uh, those were places that were very much, you know, on the sort of analog digital divide where it was for the gram. Everything in that physical space was designed for someone to want to engage with it through a social media lens. Uh, I went through a refinery of 29, 29 rooms, uh, had their pop up here not far from where I am right now in Brooklyn. Um, and I went over there and I, I was like amazed at what was going on. I mean, it was just bonkers. People were really, really into it. And, and the it that they were into was from a production value point of view, it was a fairly simplistic set of environments. But, you know, the way it triggered this sort of desire to see and be seen uh, was fantastic. Uh, you know, you were talking in a recent podcast uh, not long ago uh, about uh, Meow Wolf. Mm-hmm. Meow Wolf, also a very That's analog kind of environment, yep. very much triggers your urge to get out your camera and take a picture of yourself there. Just like the old Kodak photo ops at the at the edge of the Grand Canyon, all good. And I, and I think that there's a there's a natural evolution of the physical going to the digital, the digital going to the physical. You know, so much so that in our office we use a made-up word that we did not coin, and which immediately divides people into two camps. People either love this word or they hate this word, and that word is fidgetal. Uh, which fidgetal. camp are you in? Do you love that word or hate that word? I, I hate that word. You hate that word. Okay, hate that good. Word. <laughs> You're a hater. I'm a lover. I love that word. So we've got a lover and a hater. Remember, those are advanced emotions. And here I thought that would be our fourth similarity, but no, no, no I'm sorry. I, no, I, I, I screwed I, that one up. Oh, that word, yeah, that word is, is when that came out, um, I don't know, at first I wanted to love it. I really wanted to love it. Uh, and, and then it, it sounded like it was an object that I would buy at a Toys R Us. I got the fidgetal spinner. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> now you see, this is a psychological test. Uh, you like, have just admitted certain yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We get we get that reaction from time to time. We kind of like that it, it's you know one way or the other. It's sort of yeah. an icebreaker. But but that that's a great connection. We did we did another project um, uh, just a little while ago, um, which connected social media and space in another way. Uh, it was called 1938 Project. We did it for the Leo Beck Institute, which is an archive of German speaking Jews in New York. And we created a very out of the ordinary project. You can still see it online, 1938 project. It's a project uh, with a, with a K instead of a C. And, uh, 2018, uh, a few years ago was the 80th anniversary of the events of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht was a terrible moment in, in Europe, in German speaking lands in Europe, where, uh, at the end of a run up of increased tension for the year of 1938, uh, Kristallnacht was a, a moment of sort of, you know, state approved, state sanctioned, state, state perpetrated, essentially terrorism on uh, Jewish subjects of those countries, breaking shop windows, uh, the, the uh, night of broken glass, Kristallnacht. Uh, those are, those were the, the windows, synagogue win- windows being broken as well. And that was really a turning point where not only, uh, uh, Jewish people in Europe, but also the entire world could see, oh, wait a minute. They're actually not kidding. Uh, this, this isn't just anti-Semitism, um, which unfortunately was not a new thing. This is something much worse about to happen. But the thing is that at the beginning of that year, uh, people, including uh, Jews in German-speaking countries, thought it might blow over or something. Uh, and so the archive has a wonderful 
a very moving collection of documents, letters, diary entries, etc. They're an archive. And they actually went through and did a massive research project, and they found poignant documents and other things from each day in the year of 1938, January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd, that, that chronicled, speaking of storytelling and emotion, it chronicled an, an arc. And if you looked at the January 1st one, perhaps it was a letter uh, from a father saying, you know, my dear Peter, I'm sorry I'm away on business so much. Please kiss your mother for me. I'll be home in, in three weeks. And by the way, all of these things you see in the news, it sh it, it'll pass. We are citizens too. They couldn't do those things to us. Something right. like that. Right. And then, you know, the tone of the letters was, you know, denial. And then it got more and more serious. And then all of this stuff happened in the fall of that year. The project that we did created an entire sort of designed ecosystem around what was essentially a social media campaign that was basically a documentary that lasted a year in social media. So uh, the archive took the January 1 uh, entry and they broadcast it. They put it out on an Instagram channel that we helped them create with custom design and everything on January 1, 2018. And then the January 2, 1938 went out on January 2, 2018. So you relived the events of 1938 over the course of a year. It was kind of long attention span theater, right? You would follow them on Instagram and then you would get this dose from the past of, of something else. And what I found incredibly interesting was that this was 2018 that this was happening. And at the same time in real life, there was this growing concern in America and in other countries that there was perhaps authoritarianism on the rise, uh, or other people might say there was fascism on the rise. Uh, certainly there was this sort of sense of like state-sanctioned something that was bubbling around. And so it was eerie. But it was it was uh, also accompanied with an exhibition. We create an exhibition for them with some of the, the, the most gripping examples of these of this archival trove uh, at their facility in, in downtown Manhattan, where you could see and respond to the social media in that exhibit. So it, it you know, it, it was kind of a, a use of technology that circled around on itself. But that was something where immersive, an immersive experience, a social media experience, a documentary experience, all of that was sort of packaged together. And it was all about those emotions. It was we were really deliberately triggering and we were ramping up the pyramid. We first started with and we didn't really have to do much because the entries did that for you in the storytelling. You start with sort of a little bit of apprehension or annoyance, certainly not serenity. And then you're moving into a little bit more sort of fear or anger. And then pretty soon you're seeing terror and rage and grief um, when you get to the, to the events of Kristallnacht. And, you know, and the crazy thing is we kind of knew how the story turned out, but you couldn't take your eyes away. So that's a, that's a, it's interesting that you bring that up, that idea of the social media connected to the immersive experience. And um, I would say it's, it's here. Yeah. It's with us. It's not going away. If there's anything that the events of last year and very early this year taught us, it's that social media is a very, very powerful force, more powerful than most people realize. No, I, I agree. I agree. And, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I think more, more stories will, will continue to embrace that because of the, of the power that it has. And uh, on, on a lighter note, have you seen the Ratatouille musical on TikTok? I have not. I have not. <laughs> I, I did not I, know there was uh, such a such a thing. It, there is such a thing. So you also, I mean, you, you kick this off by talking about user-generated content. Yeah, right? yeah. Which, You know, I guess our client was a user and they were generating the content. But, you know, user-generated content is like sort of every person, you know, you know, high school kids or whatever. So the Ratatouille musical on TikTok, it, it started some time ago. Somebody who, you know, really loved the Ratatouille uh, movie. You know, it's about a it's about a rat that knows how to cook. It happens yeah. in Paris. It's very romantic, and the theme there is anyone can cook. Right? So uh, one person like recorded. You know, TikTok is very very short videos, and they recorded a kind of a Broadway musical style ballad about the, the rat. His name is Remy, and you know, Ratatouille, you are my hero. You are the finest. Oh, Ratatouille! Oh, Ratatouille! And somehow this went viral, and then people started adding songs 
And before you knew it, they sort of cobbled together. And this is a lot of people now. It's like a megatrend, uh, a musical. And you, you have to basically, you know, boot up your TikTok okay. and then watch like a zillion uh, short clips to get like, you know, this. it's basically fan fiction. It's the equivalent mm -hmm. of fan fiction. It's like, you know, uh, illegal Harry Potter spinoff yeah. blogs. Um, but it's in this format. And it's crazy. You really have to check it out. Everyone has to, to check, check it out. out. Because also, I just wanted to mention it because it's kind of an antidote to the... I'm talking about some subjects that have some other emotions in them today. So yeah. this definitely will bring uh, joy. In some cases, if you don't like Broadway musicals, it may also trigger some disgust or some loathing. <laughs> um, but it's really... Uh, it's just... It's delightful what people get up to. And a, a lot of the people yeah. doing it are actually Broadway pros because they've been out of work. Sure. Right. I'm gonna. I will have to check that out. Um, Got to check it out. Uh, well, one other thing everyone should check out is Future of Storytelling. I'm sure you know that one, and that's yes. that's a blog and a newsletter. And I think a lot of what's happening with with all of this storytelling and all things we're talking about are just talking about, you know, a, a, a sort of year a day calendar done over Instagram from the past with a, you know, that that seems like a crazy format. I mean, what's evolving is the format, right? So uh, Future of Storytelling is a pretty interesting clearinghouse where they're really talking about new new formats. What what does technology or changes in culture give us in terms of new ways to pour to pour story into some kind of new bucket? That's worth checking out too. Well on that note, um I would say thank you first off for uh, for taking the time to uh, to chat. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And uh I will also ask where can people find you and uh on, on Instagram, on Twitter, um where can they see what you're up to? Yeah, they can find they can find me most on LinkedIn. I'm Jonathan Alger, and you can probably track me down. The name of my company is C and G Partners. You can Google either of those things, and you'll find your way to our website. And uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Experience by Design podcast. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at OpenEye Global, and also actually on uh, Twitter as well at Brian Mazaros. So until then, thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon.